Hello and welcome to another episode of Common Room Philosophy. Today is the first time I've had a returning guest on the podcast, David Bather-Woods of Warwick University. David was last interviewed for our most popular episode on Schopenhauer, boredom and loneliness. If you haven't heard that episode, I'd recommend checking it out after this one. David's an assistant professor in Warwick's philosophy department. This year, he started teaching a module on the philosophy of evil, a subject that I have a few questions about. In this episode, we'll discuss what evil is, why we need it as a concept, whether it's wrong to try and understand an evil person, and whether we must be free to be evil. But first, welcome David. Thanks for coming on the podcast again. Hi Toby, it's a pleasure to be back on the podcast. For my first question, I've been wondering, your research interests include Schopenhauer's pessimism, which we discussed in a previous episode, and now the philosophy of evil. Why do you think you seek out these darker topics? So I got interested in evil through Schopenhauer, basically, because Mm. Schopenhauer was one of the first philosophers I became interested in and one of the reasons I wanted to study philosophy. And when I came to do my PhD research, which was on Schopenhauer's pessimism, I was looking for areas of contemporary philosophy that were thinking about some of the kinds of questions that Schopenhauer was thinking about, questions about the role of suffering in our lives and the questions that raises about the value of life and existence in the world. And a lot of that thinking work had been done in in a particular area of the philosophy of religion, which is the problem of evil. So mm. there was lots of historical discussions of that problem. And there was lots of contemporary work on the very logic of the problem, you know, work on what it would take for evil to defeat good and the different kinds and styles of arguments that people have made from evil. So that was one reason, one way I got from Schopenhauer to evil. But I think the deeper story, which again can Mm. be Schopenhauer can explain, which is, so Schopenhauer has this idea about where our what he calls our metaphysical need comes from. So we, we ask metaphysical questions, according to Schopenhauer, not out of, you know, idle thinking, but there's some sort of deep seated need in us that wants to ask about the nature of, make sense of the nature of reality and existence. Yeah. And he adds to a kind of, or has a twist on a, on a long story, which goes back to Aristotle and Socrates, the idea that philosophy comes from wonder. And Schopenhauer thinks that wonder isn't quite enough because if everything's going well, we tend not to wonder or we tend not to yeah. ask questions. And Schopenhauer thinks that actually we tend to wonder when things go wrong. And we tend to have kind of big scale wonders about whether life is worth it at all or whether we can make sense of life when there seems to be uh, some kind of major wrong, some kind of evil that makes us question whether existence and, and life is worth it at all. So. Schopenhauer, I mean, it might be more accurate to say that Schopenhauer thinks that philosophy begins in despair rather than wonder. I think I'm of that mindset too, that it's when things don't make sense that people start asking philosophical questions, I think. And nothing makes less sense than evil, really. When when you see evil in the world, it makes makes the world look a very nonsensical place. So I think it's a natural place for philosophical questions to arise. Mm. And what, what do you think, like, drew you to these topics? It is grimly fascinating like when you, when you look at, cause the, the way I, my wife always complains, not complains, 
She's always concerned about the kinds of books I bring home because they'll have like these titles about evil and stuff and there'll be often historical atrocities and things like that. I guess maybe I am. I'm not a, a, a pessimist psychologically, I don't think. I don't think I dwell on the dark side in that sense. And I don't think I expect poor outcomes relative to anyone else or, or anything like that. I just think there's something I can't you know, it's hard to get your head around exactly how these things happen, how people can bring themselves to, to, to do these kinds of things. And uh, yeah, that, that, that kind of, yeah, fascinates me, I guess, not just as a philosopher, but I find it psychologically fascinating to, to think about mm. too. Cool. Yeah. I think that's going to come up a little bit later when we talk about understanding evil um, mm. and whether we should even try. So you've been teaching the philosophy of evil rather than actively researching it. Mm. How did you choose to approach this topic with your class? Good. So I approached it in a word historically. So I was quite impressed. One of my colleagues, Keith Ansel Pearson, had mm. a really successful module called Philosophy of the Emotions. And I thought it was a really clever thing to do, which was to take a really engaging concept, but approach it historically. So. So he looked at William James and Simone de Beauvoir and, and, and back to the, you know, the Stoics and, and a lot of our students really enjoyed that course. And I just thought it was a, a great way to do history of philosophy with a kind of concept that was going to bring people in. And again, I thought that, you know, because of the sort of perverse fascination with evil that I mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. I thought philosophy was going to, evil was going to bring people in. And, and so we looked at contributions in the history of philosophy going back. We didn't do it in fully in chronological order. We actually started with Hannah Arendt and her idea of the banality of evil. Mm. And we looked at Kant and we looked at Voltaire and Rousseau, Simone Weil. The furthest back we went historically was actually Dante, Dante's Inferno. We looked at that to raise questions about how we should treat evildoers, how they should be punished. And in particular, whether they can be punished in a, in a loving way, given that mm. divine punishment is supposed to be some form of love. Uh, and that was a kind of interesting paradox, it seemed. And uh, yeah, so we also looked at Adorno and, and, and some more recent writers like Claudia Card. And I think the only living person we, we looked at as, as a required reading was uh, Raymond Gator and his views on genocide. But in each case, mm. I tried to get a piece of writing from a philosopher where they had a particular evil in mind. So Voltaire and Rousseau had the Lisbon earthquake disaster in mind and Hannah Arendt had Eichmann in mind. And um, there were other examples too of where philosophers, were, they were thinking about the concept of evil, but they were also thinking of evils or one evil in particular. And, and it raised maybe different questions or different angles mm. on, on the concept. So, so that was a more historical way of looking at it. I realized that, I mean, I, I could have done a totally different course that was just about theory of evil. Mm -hmm. So not all of the things we were looking at were answering the question, what is evil, which, which a theory of evil would, would answer. But, you know, there's enough literature in sort of contemporary theory of evil that we could have done a whole 10 weeks just on various different theories of, of evil. And that would have been another way, another way to go and, and, and and maybe I'll change it and do a bit more, more theory, but we looked at it in historical way and that's, that's where I'm most comfortable. I love the history of philosophy. I mean, we talked about that before, so I was really pleased to just read these texts with the students and see their impressions. And in some cases, introduce them to new philosophers or philosophers that were new to them. So I did a little poll during one of my seminars. I asked them to raise their hand if they'd heard of Simone Weil before and none of them had, which, which was, okay. you know, great to introduce them to, to this philosopher who I think, um, 
is is fascinatingly deep if you know difficult to uh to, to really read because she, she writes brilliantly but also mystically i think in places we also read john amory who wrote a book at the mind's limits he was a holocaust survivor and he he was in auschwitz and we read some of his essays and again i was really pleased that we got to read those together because that they're, they're well this is the one thing that i realized that was different from my between my module and keith's philosophy of emotions one they everyone got to look at a different emotion every week there was love and there was anger and there was you know mm. it was a there was a wide range we were looking at evil every week and i, and I at, a, at a certain point i started to feel a little bit guilty that i was making people dwell on these these really dark things week by week i hope they got enough variety in their diet from their other modules so there were, you know, especially with Amory's writings, obviously as a Holocaust survivor, they, that was mm. seri serious material. But again, I was really uh, impressed and pleased by the, the level of conversation, you know, and the seriousness we, we, we approached it. Yeah. So that's the way I mm. approached the module. Was there anything that surprised you in the way that students responded to the module? Yeah. None <laughs> of them were evil. None of them were evil skeptics from the start anyway. So I was expecting from the first class. For somebody mm. to go, why are we even using the term evil? It's archaic. Mm. It's maybe, you know, a religious hangover, like the, well, it's close to the word sin maybe. And, and I was expecting so many of them to say, look, nobody's really evil. It's not a useful concept. It demonizes people. It divides people. It doesn't help us understand anything. Nobody raised that question to me anyway, for weeks until. When we came to study Claudia Card, so she's one of uh, a few theorists of evil who think it's important that we retain the concept in our moral language. And she gives some arguments for that. And, and in particular, one of her books that she wrote after 9-11, she made a case for, you know, that the word had been kind of hijacked by, well, I don't know, hijacked, but the word had been taken into some bellicose, you know, political, you know, saber rattling discourse, you know, Bush's state of the union. Yeah. You know, the kind of axis of evil speak and so on. And uh, we did at the end have a debate. In fact, we did a crossover lecture with my colleague, Kasim Kassam. He teaches a module on the philosophy of terrorism, mm. counterterrorism. We did a crossover lecture about whether evil is a useful concept for understanding terrorism in particular. And there we got to raise questions about skepticism about evil, but I was expecting a lot more skepticism sooner. And maybe it's because of the way I approached it actually, because the first person, the first evildoer, as an example I gave them, was Eichmann, because we talked about Arendt. So I think, you know, it's hard to not call a Nazi evil, isn't it? You know, so if, if you mm. give them examples of like these really atrocious crimes, maybe it's harder to be skeptical about whether evil exists and you can just get on with the question, the more fine grained questions. But yeah, so that was really surprised me, but it allowed me to just, you know, get on with the business of it would have been difficult if I had to put down skeptical worries every week. Cool. Yeah, no, I think I'm probably going to get into some slightly more skeptical questions in a minute on evil. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, it, it might be interesting to hear in general what philosophers mean when they talk about evil before we mm. enter into it. That might, you know, it might be a lot of different things, mm. but yeah, maybe we should give a couple of examples as well. Yeah, good. So let's see. I'm tempted to start with an unhelpful right. start, which is to say that philosophers have meant very different things over the years by evil, mm. but let's not start with the unhelpful one. One thing that I think they all have in common is that it's a special kind of bad or a special mm. kind of wrong, especially extreme kind. 
maybe the most extreme kind. I think maybe that's something that they all have in common. Over the years, though, I think it has changed as the sort of different philosophical questions have been raised. And I guess, I guess the sort of social and cultural context has changed. So for instance, obviously the problem of evil still gets discussed in mainstream philosophy of religion, but I think the problem of evil would have been a, a bigger item on the kind of just the general mainstream philosophical agenda for, for a while, at least so long as many philosophers were themselves theists and they would have thought in terms of a variety of different kinds of evils, including not just moral evil, so evil actions, evil doing, but a so-called natural or physical evil. So these are harms where there isn't a agent, let's say behind them, but come about by natural or physical processes, but they are, well, here's the the question, do they have to be extreme forms of, and maybe they don't. I mean, maybe if you do believe in a divine creator and you think that divine creator has, we have some reason to expect that they would never harm us, then even the merest harm we could maybe think of as a form of evil. But then if you don't have God in the picture, how do you make sense of the idea of natural evils when there's no agency behind it? Well, well, maybe it's those kinds of natural harms that make us wonder about the um, value of, you know, existence. So for instance, if I, you know, stub my toe when I get out of bed, I'm not going to call that evil usually because it doesn't make me, you know, raise my hands and say, why, why me? But if, if something, you know, if I, if I lose a close family member, maybe it would, and, and maybe I would consider that evil in the sense of it's, it's a harm that makes me question the value of the existence. And then there's another category, you know, further back the idea of metaphysical evil. So perhaps the, you know, reality is designed in such a way that it's prone to produce these kinds of evils. That might be another kind of evil. Now, over time, I think those distinctions have often been collapsed to the point where we, we end up with mainly just thinking about moral evil, because again, maybe it's shifted from a theological uh, context into a, a secular context. So I guess, you know, a lot of philosophers in the philosophy of evil as distinct from philosophers of religion working on the problem of evil, philosophers of evil, I think tend to be interested in moral evil these days, in which case that they're, they're thinking about a special class of extreme wrongdoing. Mm. Is, is evil always linked to a certain type of motivation? Cause I was just thinking about the context of say like the Lisbon earthquake, back when lots of people were theists, you could think of that as evil because in some sense it's caused by some other entity, or you're wondering how could it be caused by, you know, that. But now if there's something like an earthquake that does kill a lot of people, often the blame will go to like negligent governments or something, like kind of corporate groups that should have done more but didn't. And we normally wouldn't think of those people as evil, we'd think of them as uh, you know, like maybe so some people directly affected by it might say so, but we sort of think of mistakes like that as, I don't know, large harms, but the people who cause them, cause them through omission. They don't think directly, I'm going to increase the risk of earthquakes. They just don't pay for a more expensive plan to defend against earthquakes or something like that. So yeah, do you have to have a certain evil motivation in order to be evil? So I, that's a, that's a good question. It's a good thought. I mean, to be honest, even at the point of the Lisbon earthquake, figures like Rousseau were, were starting to 
uh, we're pushing a line that, that, that you were just pushing, which is, he says at one point, and it sounds really callous, but he says, look, nature didn't make 6,000 apartments built on a precarious fault line in what, mm. which was prone to, which would be prone to earthquakes and tsunamis. It, it was a misuse of human freedom. I mean, whether that misuse of human freedom counts as evil in this sort of extreme wrongdoing sense may, may be a separate question, but that's where we find it's not the very first time, but it's, but it's a prominent time where we see a philosopher trying to link a physical evils to, to moral evils in a way that deflects blame from God. But whether evil has to be linked to a certain kind of motive, to my, to my knowledge, uh, a lot of philosophers have tried not to define evils in terms of a distinctive motive, at least since I think Hannah Arendt had this huge impact. So we should probably talk about Arendt's impact on this discussion in that when mm. she, she was reporting on the Eichmann trial in Jerusalem in the early sixties, and she was reporting for the New Yorker and she ended up publishing a book, the subtitle of which was, well, it was Eichmann in Jerusalem, a report on the banality of evil. And almost the last word in that book is this phrase, the banality of evil. People thought it was outrageous because it sounded like she was saying that it was in some way ordinary or when these crimes were obviously extraordinary because mm. Eichmann was a kind of the logistics person that organized all the transportation of people to, to death camps. And one of the many things that have been taken from Arendt's thought on this is that evil doing doesn't have to come about by, for instance, being motivated by evil. I mean, she, her impression of Eichmann was that he was motivated by, you know, careerist goals. He, he, he mm. wanted to, you know, raise, he, he liked a certain amount of power within this kind of, you know, Nazi bureaucracy and he wanted, and he was, he was extremely competent at doing what they asked. It was just that what they asked him to do was to transport and exterminate millions of Jewish people and, and others. And so her view was that, that look, he was just this, this banal man who wasn't really capable of independent critical thinking. As a side note, many people now, historians who have access to different archival evidence and, and, and other sorts, think she, she got the wrong end of the stick that, that, so there's the historian Christopher Browning and biographer Bettina Strangnet who, who've argued that Eichmann was a thoroughgoing anti-Semite. He was a true believer in Nazi ideology. He quite liked the circle of, you know, Nazi sympathizers he, he had around him while he was hiding in Argentina. You know, he, he was, he was not as banal as he made himself out. And really the banality, the appearance of banality was sort of part of his defense. You know, I, I actually think again, we're getting, this, this is too much of a digression, but uh, I actually think maybe something even more subtle is going on in Arendt's thinking, right? So I think what she may have been trying, or one way of reading what she's trying to say is, look, the, there are two Eichmanns. There's the one that everyone thought he was going to be, which is the, the, the villain, the one who just mm. wanted to, to destroy. And if he's that, then he's, then he's evil and he's culpable and he'll, he'll get what's coming to him. Or there's the Eichmann who, who, who appeared at the trial, which is not the villainous Eichmann, but the boring bureaucrat, the cog, the, the suit. Now, Aaron's point, I think was, look, look, even if he's that, I mean, he probably, he's not probably he's pretending, but even if he is mm. what he's pretending to be, he's still culpable. <laughs> he's not any less culpable just because he's a suit or a bureaucrat. So either, either he's the villain 
or the bureaucrat, but either way, he's culpable. I think that's her point. And in which case, it doesn't matter whether she was right or wrong. It doesn't matter whether Eichmann's performance was true or false. He was culpable. And that was what she was really interested in, whether he was responsible and culpable for what he was doing. In any case, right, why did I talk about that? Well, because since then, philosophers have been careful not to, not everyone, but philosophers have been careful not to define evil in terms of specific motives. Because for instance, mm. the, at least the Eichmann who appeared on the stand claimed to have, but you know, rather banal motives. Nonetheless, he, what he did was, was deeply evil. So yeah, it's, it's for a lot of philosophers, it's not about motives. It's about something else. Okay. Yeah. I think that links to my next question, which is why separate this word evil from others like bad and wrong? And why should we give it a special and separate attention? I think especially if we're understanding evil as just particularly bad bads, because then it's, why not just call it very bad? Yeah. What's, what's special about evil, especially when we remove the motivation component? Yeah, it's a good point. And that's definitely something one needs to, you know, touch on it if, if to, to address the sort of skeptical worry that we, that I, that I said, I was surprised my students didn't raise more. <laughs> so some of the things that philosophers have said are these, that, that it's, it's important to have a concept in our moral language that expresses something that expresses something that is more serious than, than just being morally bad. I mean, of course we can say we can, we can, we can qualify the bad. We can say extreme wrong or extreme bad, very, very serious bad. But even those I think are approximate. I think there's something about mm. evil that has a kind of force which can't be reduced. It's an unanalyzable kind of feature of the concept of evil. What else? Some philosophers, Claudia Card again is one of them, thinks that by calling something evil, we kind of prioritize it's something we need to address, you know, before we address, not, not to the exclusion of anything else, but it kind of t has this lexical priority. It's, it's, it's first on our list to try to address. She thinks that's, and again, so Card's background is interesting because she, as well as being a historian of philosophy and being interested in evil, she also mm. wrote and taught about feminist philosophy and, and her book, The Atrocity Paradigm, you know, some of the examples of evil, she talks from some of the atrocities and the reason she talks about atrocities again is because she thinks they take priority. A lot of them are, for instance, to do with like domestic violence. She has a whole chapter on domestic violence, which she mm. thinks she calls terrorism in the home. And, um, you can see there why she wants to, you know, she's suggesting that these are, these are social ills, evils that, that should take priority. So that's, that's another, another reason might be that we want to say that, look, when, when we call something evil, we, somebody has crossed a line. So there's a qualitative difference. Maybe it's a crossing a line that, you know, perhaps is treated. Well, I, I was going to talk about it in terms of formulating in terms of humanity. So when we dehumanize others, but then I think you can treat animals in evil ways. So, so I don't know whether that one yeah. exactly works, but, but you've, you've, there's something, um, you know, deeply valuable that you violated. I think that might be a better way to put it that, you know, that maybe you wouldn't have done, maybe just you know, sort of ordinary wrongdoing, it's not necessarily a violation of something valuable, desecration of something valuable. It's maybe a, a, you know, it's wrong, it's a harm, but it's, but it's not, it doesn't cross that line. So those are reasons why people think we should keep the concept feel, but it does have costs. So I mentioned earlier that 
people use it to demonize. You know, when, when you ask the question, what is evil, you ask, you know, luckily, what do philosophers mean by it? But other people, what they mean by evil is some, sometimes some sort of mysterious force, right? Like mm. almost being like possessed by the devil or, or what have you. And that, and that's, you know, not necessarily a good place to, to go when thinking about evil. Uh, because it, it makes it seem like this irremediable fault, like we, we can't, this, you know, it could lead to some sort of laxity, like, look, there's always going to be evil in the world. There's not much we can do about it. It tends towards, so a lot of discussions you hear and, uh, in evil use this term manichaeism, you know, the duality of good and evil, the idea that good and evil are kind of separate but forces in the world. And that kind of manichaeist thinking is, is the kind of thinking that to go back to an earlier point comes up in this political rhetoric that can be very divisive. So. Yeah, the concept of evil has its costs, I think, but uh, you know, those are some of the reasons why people want to keep hold of it. Mm. Yeah, one of the costs that I'm particularly interested in is some people think that evil acts just shouldn't be understood, that there's something about evil which goes beyond our understanding and that attempting to understand it would actually take some of the culpability out of it. For example, when you get evil characters in books who are given a rich inner life, sometimes they seem more sympathetic than if you just saw a news article saying what they what they did or perhaps like the blurb of the book might make you think they're far worse than you feel when you you actually read it so yeah how how do you think we should think about this like should we should we try to understand evil as we try to understand other wrongs or is there something different about it yeah it's a, a, another good question so so i mean you've put it in terms of understanding evil doers i think and i think that's right mm. because I don't, I don't think there's any question that we should try to understand that the concept of evil yeah. i think that's what as philosophers were trying to do but particularly the kinds of philosophers that i've mentioned so far like again arendt some people might think that by yeah as you say trying to understand them we somehow excuse them now a lot of arendt's defenders so so one of them is another favorite philosopher of mine, a living philosopher, Susan Nyman, she argues in, in one of her articles on, on Arendt that look, understanding to, to understand is just not to excuse. <laughs> they're not the same mm. thing. I mean, there's a sort of folk wisdom that they are the same thing, but, but they're simply not. And, and you, you can see that in Arendt's thinking about Eichmann. She doesn't think his actions were in any way excusable, even though insofar as he was banal or appeared to be, his motives were perfectly uh, understandable in the sense that, you know, we understand why people want to get along in their careers and want to rise through, through the ranks and so on. It just so happens that within the context he was in, that led to extreme wrongdoing that, you know, if he had the, there's another branch of Arendt's thinking, the reason why he is culpable is that it, it was his responsibility to think critically about what he was being asked. And his, his real fault and where his culpability lies is in his lack of judgment, that, mm. that he didn't exercise judgment and, and, and challenge some of the things he was being asked to do, but instead just perform them to the best of his ability. And uh, I, I think it's an interesting question about understanding, because on, on one level, it's obvious we can understand without excusing. But on another, I do get the force of the idea that it's psychologically hard to understand evildoers. So suppose that I learn about this uh, serial killer in the, in the news uh, and, and I read that there's good evidence or maybe even they've testified themselves that they derive a great deal of sexual pleasure from killing people in, in certain, you know, grotesque ways. So mm. on, on one level, insofar as 
you know, sec, you know, the motive for sexual pleasure is not extraordinary. It's an understandable motive. But then when you get into the details to be sexually aroused by extreme violence is a different thing. That's where I might say, I just don't understand how somebody can be like that. But on the other hand, psychologists will possibly be able to tell us a story about how that person came to have those proclivities. And, and again, I, I don't think it necessarily excuses anyone just to understand them. And, and again, I think if we want to combat the some of the things that motivate the skeptical worry. So the skeptical worry is motivated by the idea that we're demonizing evildoers. One of the reasons why, why we might be skeptical about the concept of evil is that it demonizes them. Well, if we want to combat that, we've got to combat it by trying to understand them, right? Mm. Um, and, but I think we can have our cake and eat it in that we can, we can understand them while also condemning them for the evil that they've done. That, that's the thing that's missing about some of the uh, responses to Arendt is that, yes, she said the banality of evil, but she said evil. That's the key word. Banality yeah. is the new, you know, the kind of uh, newer way to think about it perhaps, but, but evil is the key word. She was not in any doubt that he was, he was an evil doer with, with all that that means. So yeah, I, I, I don't think it necessarily follows, even though I see the point. Mm. But there, yeah, I don't know that there is something there, even with Eichmann, where if you're if you're saying that he's essentially, he's following motives that many of us have, his mistake, you know, not critically thinking about what he's being told to do, is also something that many people have. It's to a different degree, in a sense. Like, the outcome of it is obviously to a different degree. And that's where, if, you know, if you call something evil based purely on, like, the tally of the harm that it causes, then sure, you'd, co you'd call that evil, just for that reason. But when he's, like, making all the mistakes that, most people do that you can you can see how there's that um people who want to imagine that an evildoer has to be very different to us like wants to kind of other those people just to sort of more to understand how that happens because it's quite terrifying to think that all of us have the features that in a different context could have made us do evil things i think that that's something that goes into it yeah i i do understand that so, so the, if the question is about whether understanding someone implies excusing them, perhaps we could approach it in a, in a different way, which is to say, perhaps that the, 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 the motives that led somebody to do it are just not the kinds of motives that excuse. We, we, so we can understand those motives. We can say, look, okay, yeah, I can understand why somebody wants to do well in their career or, you know have access to a certain kind of pleasure, but those, those, and those motives don't excuse that, that might be mm. the, the point. And, and, and we might even go deeper and some philosophers have in saying that what's actually distinctive about the, the kind of agency that people like Eichmann displayed is that there's just no conceivable excuse for what they did. It, it's very hard to think of anything that Eichmann could, could say genuinely to, to excuse himself he might be able to exculpate himself. So for instance, it was true that if he'd have not followed orders, he would have been, you know, immediately executed. Although I guess a certain kind of courage might have made him decide, okay, I'd rather be executed. But let's say he was, you know, or some other evildoer was, was genuinely coerced. Maybe, maybe they've been exculpated because really there's no agency involved there. But mm. we might think that the kinds of evils that uh, people like Eichmann do, there's just, there's just nothing they can do to 
to excuse what they did, even though they could possibly render it intelligible to us by, by mm. explaining, you know, one step after another, how they came to do what they did. And that again is why, you know, so to go back to your point about how this is illustrated in literature or film, you know, so, uh, I mean, or TV, mm. so the, 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 you know, the kind of evildoer of our day is Walter White and, and Breaking Bad. That's a good example of where, look, there's not, some of the things that Walter White does are absolutely inexcusable. In terms of the loss of life and the crimes and the wrongdoing and so on, but what's fascinating about the show is that you see step by step how he how he gets into those situations where he does those inexcusable things. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And and shows like that have to walk such a such a line to. You know, I've I've often felt most disengaged when I watch that kind of media or read that kind of media about someone becoming evil when they do something that just makes no sense to me. Like when they yeah. when they have a drive that I just don't understand. So like the best the best versions of literature or movies or TV shows like that are the ones where they do sort of test that thesis that we could all be evil if we were put into different circumstances. Because yeah. every step of the way, you sort of understand why they're doing what they're doing, but what they're doing has become something that causes a lot of harm. Yeah. And th there's obviously a taste for that in the sense that, you know, media representations of evil, the villains tend to be outlandish. So think of like a Bond villain. They're kind of silly. They're cheesy. You know, the old Bond was pretty, you know, some of the villains he faced were, were kind of silly characters, really. They're almost, you know, comical. But nowadays, and you know, you look at the way that superhero franchises have gone. Now, now we've got the Joker, we've got these people who've got their backstories. They're the downtrodden underdogs, and you can <laughs> kind of understand, you know, right. they've been kicked while they're down, and, and uh, now they've become Oscar-winning dramas, you know, rather rather than uh, so they have more somehow more artistic integrity because because they they seem more psychologically real, I suppose, and more mm. psychologically interesting. Having said that. You might just like the cheesy, you know, villain, the Bond villain, or the or the kind of caricatures of the Bond villain, and and the old Batman, you know, like the 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 Adam West Batman, the TV Batman, where it's like silly. You're just like, why does this person really want to rob this bank or you know burst in on this ball and yeah. you know shoot all these millionaires or whatever? Yeah, so so artistically, it seems more more interesting. Although I think there is some some aesthetic delight to be had in looking mm. at uh, silly silly villains as well. Yeah, I guess then you're not really thinking of it as evil as well. That those those villains don't usually do things which we'd No, you're right. Yeah, like all the people that they hurt are kind of goons and like extras. That's right. It's it's sort of in the same way that in a superhero film now the the heroes just like dispatch hundreds of goons and you're not supposed to care about them, even though the heroes are causing like a ridiculous amount of harm for like not much reason a lot of the time. Yeah, um, you're right. There there is a line. There is definitely a line. I, I, you're absolutely right because even with the sort of cheesy cheesy Bond villains they've got these Baroque elaborate plans mm. for world domination and that's their goal yeah. <laughs> you know their goal is world domination or something like that and you think it's such yeah. a silly it's a silly goal but if they you know it would be it, it wouldn't you wouldn't get the kind of cheesy aesthetic delight that I'm talking about if the villain then you know committed some you know some genuine atrocity and you know and that was drawn you know in quite realistic ways you're right that would suddenly lose that that that's the that does seem to be a line there where we mm. encroach on not just this villainous evil but but real you know true evil not that and obviously this is the thing cinema can or and again or literature can depict 
it can depict a, a story of understanding of how people came to that, or it can depict the villainous evil, which kind of seemingly comes from nowhere, but is sort of silly. But it can also depict this kind of villainous evil that's, yeah, that seems to be true evil. People who, who are doing things that genuinely provoke kind of horror and disgust. Not that that's definitive of evil, but, but something that might be important in, 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 in kind of identifying it in film and, and uh, art. Just to kind of finish off this section on understanding, do you think there's a sense in which we should be concerned that understanding evil could lead to undue forgiveness of the evildoer? Hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting question because, oh, you know, there's, there's a question of whether to understand is to excuse and then there's the other question of whether to understand is to forgive. Again, I don't think it follows Again, you know, no matter how understandable we, we, we make an evildoer's motive, whether it's careerism or, or what have you, it, it doesn't necessarily, you know, wouldn't necessarily make the victims any more prone to, to forgive them. If anything, it might make them even more outraged. You know, they might think, what, you, you did all this for that? You know, you might, you might think that actually understanding how banal some people's motives might be, might, might be, might incline you to forgive even less. But it's a good question about like how cheaply we, we can forgive or, or it's a good mm. issue to think about on the, on the philosophy of evil module. We did end up thinking about that because uh, when we looked at John Amory, the two essays we looked at were, were, he has this essay on resentment and this essay on torture. So he was tortured by the Gestapo in quite a hor horrendous way. And he, he, he has this essay where he talks about how he, he feels a certain kind of, well, he wants to adopt a moral stance of resenting his torturers when he was writing a couple of decades after the fact, when, when it was, a, it was a time when people were taught, you know, wanting to for social and political reconciliation, for, for people to sort of forgive and forget. And he made the case that actually he, he wants to hold back that healing as it were, until these things have been properly reckoned with. And there's a proper sense of remorse, you know, if, if that's at all possible. So mm. it's definitely, it's definitely a risk that we could, uh, we could underplay this, this seriousness of evil in a way that would be, you know, offensive, you know, to, to survivors of evil. That's, that's for sure. But again, I don't know whether understanding, cause, cause, cause I get it, you know, when I read Amory's essays and he talks about the people who tortured him and he actually directly disagrees with Aaron here. He, he thinks they're not banal at all. He thinks they're downright cruel. And he could sort of, even though mm. they had sort of ordinary faces, he said he could see that they were motivated by cruelty and he thought the torture was the very essence of national socialism and, and so on. I feel yeah. like I've had it, I get a much deeper understanding of evil from him. You know, I, yeah. I, to me, when I read him, I feel, I feel even more outraged. <laughs> I feel even mm. less inclined to forgive, but I feel I've understood the phenomenon better because he's such an excellent thinker. So, so, you know, that might be a case study of where you know, it's clear that understanding doesn't lead to a kind of cheap forgiveness, I think. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I think that the reason I was thinking about this specifically was because, you know, you mentioned Kasim Kassam's module earlier on the philosophy of terrorism, counterterrorism. I did that module and there was some, there was this concern that lots of terrorism scholars, because they constantly have to proclaim how evil terrorists are and how kind of impossible it is to understand their motives, actually missed quite a lot of low-hanging fruit in understanding how terrorists work, like why they do what they do, 
the causes of their actions because their actions seemed so extreme. There was this almost social pressure not to not to attribute rational motives to them. So even when there were, you know, maybe they made some rational errors, but based on the end that they take, you know, if if you're especially if it's some like absolute religious end, there could be rational means to take to defend that end, which would be terrorist. And yeah, that kind of the social pressure not to forgive these people meant that they struggled to even try to understand them. Yeah. I mean, the, it might take a great writer like Amory to to pull it off, to, to be able to treat these matters with, 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 with the seriousness they deserve, but also not be afraid to, to get to the bottom of, of, of what was going on. Yeah, but, but I agree, you know, it, I do think these questions are linked and by using, by, by falling over ourselves to condemn these things, we, we might, we might disallow ourselves from, from really trying to, to understand them. But to me that, yeah, that, that, that seems more like an anxiety about <laughs> doing the wrong thing than, than mm. something that's logically impossible to do. I, I think you can. You can do both. You can see something with in a very lucid way, uh, while also recognizing that it's you know sort of deeply serious and, and not being in any way ambiguous about whether you would condemn it or not. Mm. So the next question I was uh, going to ask is about freedom and evil, and whether freedom's required right. for evil. I think this links quite a lot to the like more than I thought to this question because there's a sense if you're skeptical that people have free will to begin with there's a sense of if you understand all the motives that go into an action you can't generally attach responsibility in the same way that people who believe in free will think that you can attach responsibility so in one sense there's a total absolution or you yeah you can't blame in the same way there's kind of a forgiveness even if you know you have sufficient reason to lock that person up and act in exactly the same way as you would if they did have free will i mean so it's a really good question i mean i I suppose so there's the bigger broader question here about whether lack of free will would undermine more freedom would would undermine more responsibility and you know if responsibility for evil doom is a form of moral responsibility then it would be undermined just the same you'd think but so there are I don't know to answer this in historical terms. No, I'm, 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 I'm kind of want to invoke Kant at this point because so Kant was was concerned about this because he he definitely thought that the concept of moral evil requires some sort of free choice. That that's for sure. And for that reason, he thought that acting directly, if it were possible, acting directly out of our natural inclinations is is not conducive to evil. So, for instance, if I, you know, if I if I have a natural inclination to to harm others then acting directly out of that is something i'm not responsible for but he has a clever trick here which is to say that actually we don't act on the incentives that those natural inclinations give us unless we have already taken those incentives up into a law that we've given to ourselves so so it's if i have the natural incentive to harm others i only go i only have a actually harm others if I've sort of given myself a rule that it's okay to harm others. Whereas there are some others who would, who may have the same natural inclination, but they've given themselves a rule not to harm others. And he thinks that's important that, that, that 
evil doing is is rooted in that because it, it has to for him come about by by a free choice in the background here for kant is that around his time people were starting to develop these kinds of sort of secular versions of of the sort of myth of the fall you know people were asking is humanity constitutionally evil or is it originally good and and he he actually thinks look that that's a big problem because if what you mean by that is does humanity have a natural inclination to do evil well then you're you know it's a borderline contradiction if 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 you think that you know acting out of a natural inclination is is incompatible with moral evil for him uh, and this is you know it has a lot more work to do to to get his whole story off the ground but for him we ha we have to explain how it can be that human beings can be evil by nature but also free when when mm. being evil by nature and being free seem to be contradictory and, and that's one part of his story that the things that are given to us by nature we're only responsible for if we're take if we've taken them up into a law that we've given to ourselves another way to, to look at this question is so i don't think understanding somebody's actions is to explain them away in a way that sort of predetermines or, or makes their actions inevitable so again take 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 the eichmann case his motives were, let's say, banal and, and to that extent, intelligible and understandable. But it would have been equally understandable for him to have a totally different response. His response, though understandable, was not inevitable. And, and again, that's part of Aaron's point, that mm -hmm. if he had a different mindset, then perhaps the, the actions that he did perform wouldn't have come about. So I don't think to understand something is to explain it away. I don't, in the sense of making what that person did ultimately inevitable. And, and, and yeah, I do think philosophers have tried hard to make room for, for freedom in evil doing. Yeah. But so the reason I think those arguments go through is because they're refusing to look into what that free choice consists of. So if once you understand what the free choice is, you know, why would somebody choose to take up harming others as their law? Like if you furnish, you know, if you, if you actually give those reasons, that normally feels like, okay, now I do understand everything that's going on. I can't think of any reasons that would be there that wouldn't already, you know, be sort of external to that person. So yeah, to put my cards on the table, I'm generally a free will skeptic in this context. And I don't think people have that kind of responsibility. So yeah, does there have to be a kind of lacuna there in the in the freedom for the, for this to go through? Like, do you have to? Yeah, like what what so, needs Eichmann yeah. to do that? Well, so here's here, here's a different way of put, uh, thinking about this. So so if the question is is freedom required for evil doing, I don't think it is. So I don't think that you know maybe the skeptical worry doesn't even ultimately matter so although i'm going to do something that you might think is a bit of a dubious move and, and, and we'll sort of trip, <laughs> up my, trip up my argument but but one of the things that eichmann one of the things that kant and, and arendt have in common as well is they, they try to sort of humanize evil and they do that by distinguishing it from sort of demonic forms of evil and so 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 kant in particular is, it thinks that evil can't come about from our natural inclinations but it also can't come about from sort of some sort of evil reason so it's that, that we have this it can't be the case that human beings have, you know, rational incentive to, to be evil so long as they're, they're human. Mm. But he does, he, and, and I say so long as they're human because 
he thinks that such a being that had such a reason would be a diabolical being, would be, be a demonic being. And they would actually be determined to do evil. And, and perhaps, mm -hmm. I guess, wouldn't be responsible for it. But, uh, you know, again, it seems like the reason why Kant wants to make that point is because he wants to find a, a sphere of freedom for humans to be responsible for their evil. But I would say the devil is evil. <laughs> you know, the mm. devil is no, is no less evil just because the devil is determined to do evil. And, you know, so, so actually, if we're talking about evil, I, I actually wonder whether evil does require freedom at all. Maybe responsibility for evil re requires mm. freedom. Uh, you know, I guess more responsibility. You know, maybe the devil is not morally responsible for for, the, for evil. I don't know, but you know, it, it, it might be a bit of an impasse. I have to say, you know, I, mm. I, but maybe not an impasse that's specific to discussions about evil. But but you know, as you know, this this comes up in you know metaphysics and moral philosophy all the time. Mm. As, um, the conflict between fr freedom and and responsibility. Yeah, I. So I, I guess it definitely wouldn't be a problem if we take evil to just mean a particularly bad harm, if we, you know, if we, yeah. if we take that route. But when we've been talking about Hannah Arendt and Kant, like, they're not talking about evil just in that way. Like, there is another feature to what makes it evil. And it's also a very intuitive feature. So I, I don't think that that, yeah, I mean, I guess yeah. I haven't read the arguments for it, but it just, to me, it feels like evil just being a particularly bad harm plus there are good reasons to call it evil for like signaling seems mm. to like not say enough for you know for what we all think of as the concept of evil yeah no i i, I do appreciate that that the i mean again to, to, to for, for Aaron, the crucial thing about why we can hold figures like eichmann responsible is that they they failed in in their judgment of the situation which mm. which is is distinct from them being incapable of judging let's say it's because if they were if Eichmann was genuinely incapable like there was some sort of I don't know impairment for want of a better word that meant that he couldn't use his critical judgment then perhaps he w wouldn't be held responsible there's there's the implication there that he was capable of using it and, and failed it in the stronger sense of you know a, a genuine omission that that it, it was reasonable to expect him to use his judgment in a way that might deconstruct mm. the kind of thinking that led to it led to his crimes and i mean it, it it would seem to suggest that there's a realm of you know freedom in there that that i mean maybe again you you might think there is a story we can tell about how that 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 failure of judgment was inevitable yeah that's that's a tricky one that's a tricky one <laughs> uh, you know you know tricky uh division to heal <laughs> mm. fair enough i yeah I think we should, yeah, we could, <laughs> we could discuss the free will stuff for longer. Forever. But I, I think it's, it's good to leave it there. Yeah. I don't know. We'll only answer this if it does seem like a sufficiently different question. Cause I think it's, yeah, I, th I think it's kind of similar, but maybe there's something else here. Could we all have been evil if we'd grown up in different environments? Like if different things had happened to us? Yeah. It's interesting. Some of the, some of the, you know, literature on moral look actually even kind of almost talks about this because it, it talks about how somebody who became a Nazi in Nazi Germany, if they if they had mm. the good fortune to have been born somewhere else, whatever that exactly means, they yeah. they might not have. And and uh, you know some some of the commentators on 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 Arendt and why Arendt is such a sort of horrifying read in a way is that the way some commentators put it is to say that you know if 
there's an Eichmann in all of us or something like that, that, mm. that, that we're, that we're all, you know, potentially capable of it. So yeah, maybe, but, but, but again, it might link to the question about, about freedom because some of the, you know, stories I've been, you know, the versions of it I've been telling from, from Kant and from Aaron suggest that, you know, in different, you know, the same circumstances, people might formulate different judgment. So if you were, you know, in, in the shoes of Adolf Eichmann or, or some of that, you know, you just may not have come to the same judgment as him, assuming you weren't absolutely identical. I'm talking about if, if Toby, yeah. you were, you were, you know, somebody gave you the task of carrying out those kinds of atrocities. Mm. I'd like to think, I'd like to think you decline. <laughs> yeah. So, so yes. yes. <laughs> um, so, so again, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I feel myself able to think that it's not just to do with circumstances and if put in the same circumstances, everyone would do the same thing. I, I mean, I'm assuming we're not asking the true question if, if somebody, you know, had the identical life events, because that, that would suggest that, you know, if you were Eichmann, would you be Eichmann? But if you were in the, in mm. the scenario that Eichmann was in, you know, I think, I think, yeah, not everyone would do the same thing. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I guess it's kind of it's kind of the question of like if your say if your childhood had gone differently or if like different decisions had been made around you, not your not sort of your own, you know, you don't have to be different, but if different things had happened in the past to you, could you be this sufficiently different person to do evil things? But I guess that's yeah, that's where like moral luck comes in. Yeah, I mean again, you might think that some of some of these things are things that we need to be trained to, to do and to use. So yeah, if, if somebody was, you know, had a really deeply deprived childhood, then they, they, they might go on to contribute to, to a cycle of, you know, abuse and violence and so on. And it's hard to, it's hard to plausibly say that they could do otherwise. On the other yeah. hand, you know, probably unless there was, you know, again, some sort of impairment, we, we would probably hold that person responsible again. And you might mm. think it's just a legal fiction, but uh, we, <laughs> but, but uh, we, we seem to, we seem to imply in the way we treat evildoers that they, that they could have done otherwise, that, mm. the, you know, not, it wasn't inevitable in the circumstances that, that it wasn't metaphysically determined, but it was morally determined by the, the actions they chose to perform in those circumstances. Cool. So, yeah. <laughs> so I think we're, near, we're nearing the end. We're going to wrap up in a minute. But I have got a bonus question from Twitter. This is from another past guest, Guy Longworth from Warwick. And he asks, can one have evil as an end? It's a good question. I mean, that could mean many things. And I, I wonder what, what the, the intent here is. I think mm. once we analyze what evil is, I think somebody can treat those things as an end, you know, if you, you can treat it as your end to do an extreme form of, of, of wrongdoing and you can do it in full knowledge that it would be wrong and you'd be culpable and that it would harm people in these sort of extreme ways. I also think that, so one, one example that springs to mind, it depends on whether the guy has in mind all kind of ultimate ends or, or ends per se, because. Suppose that, um, suppose that I'm in the Manson family mm. and I want to really Im impress Charlie mm. and the best way to impress Charlie 
is to do something really horrendous, like, you know, um, murder a, you know, pregnant film star. And in a way I've taken evil as my end, not as my ultimate end, because my ultimate end is to impress Charlie. And I mean, maybe that's evil, I don't know, <laughs> but, but let's say that it's, a, that's kind of a banal motive to kind of want to, the, the esteem of someone you in a perverse way admire. So, so there's, there's that, I, I think there you do take evil as your end because you're, you're, you're actually trying to gain status within your, you know, milieu that, that, you know, which is people who respect evil doing. So I think that's, that to me seems possible. What, you know, uh, but then you, you look at figures like, let's say Charles Manson or, 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 you know, if we go up a level as it were, you wonder whether, and, and you, you think of maybe other serial killers and so on, you, those are the cases where you think you know, you might have someone who seems to be choosing evil and they, they model themselves. They'll often give themselves satanic names and symbols. They'll model themselves on a kind of, yeah, the, the fictional, the kind of diabolical evil that Kant actually doubted human beings were capable of, but they certainly seem mm. to aspire, aspire to that. The thing is that, you know, this is again, where Kant might be illuminating is that Kant thinks that when we, when we basically do anything other than follow the moral law, we aren't acting on our, our strongest rational incentive. So we might think that even people who treat evil as their ultimate end aren't doing so rationally. Mm. That might be, that might be impossible that a reasonable person would never treat evil as their ultimate end. So, you know, maybe in that sense, I'd be, I'd be persuaded to say that it's not possible, but in these other senses, I, I think it's, to me, it does look possible and maybe even as, has happened given that, you know, those mm. are real cases I was talking about. Yeah. Yeah, I think another way of understanding the question as well is, so that's that's kind of evil ends, but the person pursuing them might not be thinking of, like, pursuing them because they're evil. They're pursuing them for different reasons, maybe. But mm -hmm. like you brought up earlier, the idea of the devil, like Kant's idea of the devil as actually pursuing evil. Yeah. Like, would that be possible? Because I think just in general, to, like, interpret somebody's... Um, motivations you normally have to think that they're like pursuing the good for yeah. them that they're pursuing like you know that it's better to impress charlie than it would be to not impress charlie or whatever. And, yeah. and that they're yeah they're pursuing what is best and what's best for them happens to be kind of evil for everybody else <laughs> but yeah. you know would it be possible to in that in that context could there be people who pursue good and then people who are pursuing evil yeah, I, I do see what you mean. And uh, yeah, if you think that evil things make the world worse and, and good things make the world better, then it, it's hard not to contradict oneself by pursuing evil when one takes into account sort of normal motivational psychology. You know, you, you, you usually act to make the world, what you know, at least better from your perspective, bring things about that you think would make the world better from, from your perspective or maybe even only for you. But then again, maybe we could trade on that distinction and say, look, maybe somebody could think that evil in general makes the world worse, but thinks, you know, think that it would make it better for them if there was more evil in the world. So somebody mm -hmm. could then pursue evil, you know, as such, they could, they could want to make the world better because they're motivated by making the world, sorry, they make the world worse because they're motivated by making the world, uh, worse. So yeah. Mm -hmm. it, it, it to me it still strikes you know as somebody who who is irrational so i do think at, at a certain point it becomes psychologically possible but only assuming some you know an, an irrational agent except for these cases as i say where maybe somebody's adopted evil and not as their ultimate end 
but with some mm. further further end in, in mind or or have kind of discounted evil from you know from from the factors that go into their decision making yeah yeah well that was a great answer and thanks for you know a really great conversation um yeah yeah i th- think we covered a lot of really interesting ground just before we wrap up the podcast are there any readings you'd recommend based on the conversation we've had and your readings and the philosophy of evil yeah i mean there are tons uh, and i've mentioned yeah. a few of the, a few of them already so so of the historical texts i'd mentioned i, I do think reading Arendt's eichmann in jerusalem mm-hmm. john amory's at the mind's limits those are two really mm-hmm. really interesting treatments of i mean you know different um perspectives on on the holocaust you know and but and, and often you know con conflicting perspectives but i think they're both well worth reading but then let's see i've got some actually nearby me a book came out last year i think it's called being evil and it's by luke Mm. russell and it's a really little book i was saying to some of my students it would be a great stocking filler uh, for Mm. when they're doing doing this course because it's one of the one of the best introductions to contemporary theory of evil I've, i've read it's just so short and precise lucid insightful and Luke Russell has his own uh, stance to defend in this, you know, and he's, he's, he's not an evil skeptic. He has his theory of evil that he thinks, you know, describes evil and, 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 and gives it a place in our moral language. But I would, mm. I would recommend his being evil. Susan Nyman's Evil and Modern Thought. So that would be good if you're looking at evil in the history of philosophy from the sort of early modern period up until mm. the 20, 20th century. And uh, Claudia Card's Atrocity Paradigm. A Theory of Evil is a book I've mentioned. It's an extraordinary book. It's very wide ranging, taking in Nietzsche, Kant, Primo Levi, another Holocaust survivor. And um, as I mentioned earlier, some fem- topics in feminism. And, and it's just a, it's an extraordinary book with quite a few quite provocative claims. It's a difficult book, I think, but, but a good book. And then there's one other, which is Evil, A History edited by Andrew Chignall, but that's another good historical introduction to the philosophy of evil, a lot to do with the Mm. problem of evil, but that's got a lot of writers from actually from different traditions as well, like, you know, Islamic traditions and, and then, you know, further back in, in Western traditions in, in, you know, ancient Greek and and further back than I've been talking about today. So that would be another book, plenty to put on the reading list. And there's, (laughs) there's much more besides, you know, Mm. there's so much I haven't, you know, touched on, but this is just. This is just the kinds of things that went into the module. Awesome. Well, thanks for those recommendations and thanks for coming on. It's been a really great conversation. My pleasure. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, consider leaving some feedback for the show, either directly on the description page if you're using Spotify as a star rating or anonymous comment, or through the form I've linked in the description. It's all anonymous, and it all helps me improve the show. Cheers, and see you next time.